Let's go ahead and do Galatians and chapter two. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16 today, but mainly we're going to start off here with verse 16, which is kind of the key of the whole passage that we want to look at today. Um, well, I want to try to help you with, and this is going to be a little tricky. Some of you are probably going to be a little offended today. I'm not really trying to offend you, okay? I'm not coming at you to do that. But I want you to think about how we sometimes take the gospel and we tie our culture to the gospel and we blend them so sometimes that we can't tell the difference between what is cultural and what is truly the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? So you ask the Lord to kind of help us navigate these, these passages today, and hopefully you'll be stronger and more encouraged as you've been through this passage. So let's start together in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. The Bible says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Did you get that last phrase there? By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Paul started out, we did two weeks ago, we we're talking in Galatians and he's, he's basically laying out, if anybody preaches another gospel than the one that I have preached to you, let them be what? Accursed, right? I mean, that's how serious he was talking about. And then last week when we looked at it, it was really powerful to me. Paul begins to tell his story. Everybody in here has a story, right? You have a story how Jesus transformed you, the work that he's done in your life. If you share that story, what should happen is what happened with Paul. He says in verse 24, and they praised who? They praised God because of me. Not they praised me. <laughs> they praised God because of me. So as we get into chapter two, we're going to see an incident today between a couple of early church leaders that was really, really confrontational, very tense. And we'll see if we can paint that picture a little bit today. But what I want you to take with you today, again, is what is really the core of the gospel. And we're going to even look at some kind of uh, tricky situations, if you will, where you have hard decisions to make and where we really need the Spirit to lead us as we make decisions like these. So let's look down in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 1. The, the first thing I want you to think about this morning is to circumcise or not to circumcise. Right? <laughs> like, what are we talking about here today? It is Father's Day. You're going to get strange things from your fathers, right? Okay, so let's talk about this together. Galatians 2 verse 1, Paul writes and he says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. And I took Titus along. And I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. 
Now, real quick, just at the beginning of this passage to give you an idea, Paul's biggest point that he's been making most of chapter one is that he didn't get the gospel from some famous church leaders of the day. He didn't go and pass his certification test that he could go preach, right? Where did he get the gospel from? From Jesus himself, right? That's the point. That's why he said, even like 14 years apart, I was away, and then I came back. And here he's telling the Galatians through all the churches in Galatia, he's saying, hey, again, I got this message directly from the Lord. And Jesus sets the precedent, not church tradition. Hello? Jesus sets the precedent, not church tradition. And I want to be careful today because I love traditions. Do you guys like traditions? Right? We're about to do our seventh annual car show, right? <laughs> we have a tradition, okay? Um, you have traditions for your holidays, right? Some of you are for July 4th. You have traditions. Isaiah loves to spend lots of money on things that blow up, right? That's his tradition, okay? Traditions are not bad in and of themselves, but when traditions supersede the truth of the gospel, we have a problem. And folks, I want to tell you, we have a problem, all right? We, so many times in our churches, we get locked into our traditions and we celebrate and sometimes we hold them up as high, in some cases even higher than the truth of the message of Jesus. And so Paul, he goes and he was, he's actually going to meet with these leaders. And again, he's setting the tone. Jesus sets the precedent. He will end up getting to meet with Peter and with James and with John. He takes Barnabas and Titus with him and he gets to share his message there. I thought this would be an interesting meeting, right? I don't know how this exactly worked out. Paul, I don't know if it was like, what are you preaching this Sunday? What are you preaching this Sunday? <laughs> he tells what he is preaching to the Gentiles, and he was worried. He was nervous because he had the message directly from God, and what he found out is the message that he was preaching to the Gentiles was the same message that they were preaching to the Jews because it came from the same source. And here's what's really interesting when I had the privilege to go to India for just a few weeks, guess what I found they were preaching over there? The same message that we're preaching over here. The same truth, the same gospel. Now, you get rid of the, all of the dressings. We weren't in any buildings like this when I was in India. Actually, most of the time, we were outside. But the colors were way better than this, by the way. Their colors were amazing. <laughs> but the gospel, the essence, the truth, it was there. And so Paul feels good that when he finds out, hey, when I shared what I was preaching, what they were preaching, I was not running my race in vain. And there was a problem, though. And Paul talks about Titus, and he says, Barnabas and Titus came with me. And he says this little quick kind of phrase here. He says, and Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. Now, I am not a medical professional. Amen for all of you. If I was, the world would be a mess. But we want to talk just briefly here about some traditions, okay? Paul has taken Titus with him. Titus is a Gentile. He's a Greek. And he goes and he's meeting with all these Jewish leaders. And what do you think the expectation may have been from the people around? Well, guess what? If you're going to serve on our ministry team, there's some things you have to do. Well, this is a pretty tough one, isn't it, right? <laughs> but Titus, the Bible says, was not compelled to be circumcised. Paul said, it's not happening. We're not doing that. Because there are some people who had come into the church, he calls them false believers, who had infiltrated their ranks, 
that they might steal away the freedom that they have in Christ. Do you know what? There are people doing the same thing today. I need to take the boys. I should have them teach the lesson. They were so good in Sunday school today. It was awesome. We were doing the fruits of the Spirit. You guys are doing the fruits of the Spirit as well, right? Some people treat the fruits of the Spirit as a checklist. Have I loved someone today? Have I been joyful today? Have I been patient today? Have I been long-suffering? And have I exercised self-control? Well, I'm going to work on my checkoff list, right? But the fruits of the Spirit are less about what you do, and they are about who you are. We had another list today. It wasn't a very fun list. David and Jacob kept working through it. It was things like hatred and jealousy and envy and discord and fighting, right? Do you have a list like that that you check off? Who did I fight with today? Who was I jealous of today? <laughs> we don't even have to think about those things, do We do those things because of sin in our heart, right? And in the same response, because of Jesus in our heart, love and joy and peace, it should flow out of who we are rather than what we're trying to do. Well, what happened again and what happens even in our ranks sometimes is people come in and they say, well, if you're going to follow Christ, have I got a checklist for you? Right? That's where church tradition can get in the way of the gospel. So Paul says, we're not having this. We're not going to make Titus get circumcised to please some false believers who have infiltrated our ranks. We're going to let the gospel shine forth. Now, what's really interesting to me is this. Over in the book of Acts, chapter 16, if you have your Bibles and you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read one verse. Acts chapter 16 and verse 3. And look at this with me. You guys remember Timothy. He was Paul's son in the faith, a really important church, early church leader. And in Acts chapter 16, verse 3, the Bible says Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, that being Timothy. So he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a... Are you confused? Wait a minute. I just thought, preacher just told me that Paul said Titus would not be circumcised because he was a Greek, a Gentile, right? But now he's reading a passage and it says, Paul said, well, Timothy, he needs to get circumcised because he was a, a Greek or a Gentile. What's going on here? I told you to be tricky, right? Why would he say in one case, this needs to happen, and in another case, he would be just absolutely against it, right? Well, this is kind of interesting to me. If you'll follow along with me here just for a second, See if you think these things apply. As I read the scriptures, I believe this is what was going on. Why might these two situations be treated differently? Well, the first thing that's a little bit interesting is Timothy was one half Jewish. His mom, his grandma, they were Jewish. So he was already Jewish by culture. Titus was completely what? Greek or Gentile, right? He was completely Gentile. So you have someone that has grown up in Jewish traditions someone who has not at all. So for, for one thing, for Timothy to be circumcised wasn't that he was going to be basically switching teams, so to speak, <laughs> okay? He was already a Jew. But for Titus to be circumcised would be what? That would be him forsaking his culture and taking on another culture. So that's one of the issues. Now, here's the other thing, and I think this is really what is key and challenging to me this morning, and that is Timothy was circumcised so that Paul might reach Jews, Jews who were lost, Jews who needed to know Christ. 
But in Galatians, Titus, uh, they were trying to have him circumcised to appease false teachers, and Paul would have none of that. Do you see the difference? It's very small. The one is, Paul would say, right, I will become all things to all men that by all means I might save some, right? And the one hand, Timothy, you're going with me. We're going to go minister to Jews who need Jesus. I don't want anything in the way. We won't have this be a question. You're already a Jew. We'll go to these places, and it will be no question, and we can focus on the gospel. But Titus, if we go to places, then everybody's going to say, well, do we all have to become Jews? And the truth of the matter is, no, you don't need to become Jews. You need to become Christ followers. You need to follow Jesus. And so that's why we have these these two different situations. So there is kind of an interesting thing to me there, how those things are separated out. But I think what I want you to see today, and again, it's going to come up here pretty clear in just a second. In Titus' situation, Paul is trying to separate the culture from the gospel. The culture says one thing, the gospel says another. Let's go to Galatians in chapter 2, verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, or Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. few simple things here real quick. Paul says they didn't add anything to my message. Right? We talked about cults just a few weeks ago. Remember our math equations? Add, subtract, multiply, and divide. That's what cults try to do to the gospel, okay? Paul here says they did not add anything to my message, but they did settle on this. Paul and Barnabas would go to the Gentiles, and Peter and the Jewish leaders would go to the Jews, and they fully agreed that what was being done was the right thing to do. They had one request. This is pretty interesting to me, especially about what we're to do today. What was their one request? Remember the Remember the poor. Paul, when you're going around, don't forget the poor. (laughs) As you're preaching the gospel, don't forget those who are most in need. Isn't that interesting? That's at the heartbeat of a person who loves Jesus. Again, that fruit of the Spirit, if you love Jesus, what's going to flow out of you? You don't have to make it a box you check off. You're going to care for the poor because that's part of what it is to love and to serve Jesus. All right? Now, let's look at the confrontation that happens down in verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, Paul's home church, if you will, he said, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So Paul is going to share with the Galatian church, again, trying to separate culture from the gospel, an issue that had come about with some of the Jewish leaders. You guys know Peter's story, right? He is 
one of the main Jews that followed Jesus, one of the main leaders of the early church. Peter will have a vision. You guys remember the animals in the sheet, right? And after that vision, he will go to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, right? And he will share the gospel with a Gentile. And basically what comes to his heart is that the gospel is for everybody. It's not just for the Jews, right? So Peter, at that, he makes the pronouncement, too, that all things are clean. If you were a Jew, there were certain things you couldn't eat, right? We talk about a few of those things, certain types of seafood. Uh, pork would be something we would think about, things like that. Uh, There's certain holidays and feasts you had to keep, these rules and rituals. Peter said that those things weren't a necessity to the gospel after his meeting with Cornelius. So what Paul describes the time where Peter goes and he shows up at the church there in Antioch, and I kind of think of our little family room in there. And there's all the tables there. And for lack of a better way to put it, maybe there's people from the north side and people from the south side. Uh, Peter was obviously from the south side, right? Because the south side people are a lot more holy than the people from the north side, right? And so Peter walks into the room, and when he first gets there, guess who Peter is sitting with? Well, he's sitting with that windy pen from the north side. And I'm sure some people in the room were like, can you believe that? Peter, he's from the south side. He shouldn't be fellowshipping with people from the north side, but he's over there. And you know what he's even eating? He's having barbecue today. Can you believe that guy? He should know better than that. And then people come in. All of the, uh, for lack of a better term, the high hobnobbers, the holy rollers, literally, right? People from the Jerusalem area who had great influence, who were strong leaders in the church, they show up at the meeting hall, they show up at the eating hall, and all of a sudden when Peter sees these people come in, what's he do? I'm not sitting at that table anymore, and I'm not eating those things in that, that way anymore. As a matter of fact, Barnabas, it would probably be good for you if you would get away from those people too and come sit over here with us. Can you believe that? Now, here's what's even more powerful to me. Paul calls him out publicly. I don't think I could do that. I might be one of those people like, hey, Peter, let's go have a discussion. Let's go down the hall here for a little bit. I got a few things to talk to you about. Paul, in front of everyone, calls out Peter and says, what you're doing is wrong. Just a few weeks ago, you were eating the same, you were sitting with them, you were fellowshipping with all these people, and now you've withdrawn. This is not right. And Peter, if you'll read later on in the Scriptures, Peter actually took it humbly. Again, that shows a real sign of a man of God right there, doesn't it, right? Someone who can take reproof with meekness. Praise the Lord if we can have that in our heart, right? So Paul called him out. And Peter will submit. Again, I want you to notice this is, I think it's interesting to me that even Barnabas did the same thing. I think it was hard for Paul that Peter would be a hypocrite, but I don't think it was anywhere near as hard as when Barnabas did it. Barnabas was his buddy. Barnabas was his co-worker, his co-laborer. They've been on so many missionary trips and seen so many people come to Christ, so many Gentiles. What Barnabas had given his life to he was now even betraying some of that because of the influence of other people. You think you have influence on other people? You absolutely do. 
That's why it's so important that we hold fast to the core truths of the gospel. Think with me here just a moment. How would it have felt to have been one of the Gentiles that were abandoned? Have you ever been the person at that table that you, the cool kid came and sat down and then all of a sudden they walked away? You know what that feels like? That's just being rejected, isn't it, right? And especially for Barnabas to do that rejecting, oh, how hard that would be. What do you think the pressure was, though, on Peter and Barnabas? What do you think that pressure felt like? Who would have the most impact on you? Who would walk in the room and you'd be like, uh-oh, I better straighten up? Hopefully it's your dad, but it better not be your dad, right? Um, I can tell you today, if my dad walked in the room, that I'm going to be just a little bit more on point. I'll be a little bit more cautious, right? Because I respect him and I want him to be happy with my life, right? Maybe it could be a college professor. Maybe it's a really close friend. But for Peter and Barnabas, I'm sure part of the pressure for them was people that were doing what they thought was a really good work in Jerusalem when they came into Antioch that all of a sudden they're like, oh boy, what are they going to think about this? Again, think your whole life was you don't eat this, you eat this, you celebrate on this day, you don't celebrate on this day, you follow these traditions. And now you've said verbally that it's okay that people don't hold to these traditions, but when you get called on the carpet about it, you're like, oh, well, maybe they should hold those traditions. Are you following? That's the pressure that they would have felt. What about the pressure on Paul to call him out? Like I told you, I don't know if I could have done that. Paul knew how important this was, and he was up to the task. Would you call him out? Would you call your brother or sister out if they were elevating culture or tradition above the truth of the gospel? You're like, no, I ain't touching that. <laughs> you know my life, preacher. You know all my baggage, all my mistakes. And I would tell you today, if the Spirit is leading us to encourage and to admonish and to reprove one another, we need to follow the Spirit's lead and trust Him. And Paul did that. And because of it, Peter is changed and the Gentile church is actually really encouraged and lifted up. Look in verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. I mean, just, wow. He just lays it out, doesn't he, right? So he calls them out in front of everyone. He doesn't necessarily handle it discreetly, but publicly because of the impact of the public sin. Did you catch that? Because of the impact of the public sin, Paul is calling out that sin publicly. I hate to say this is kind of dangerous, probably to some extent, pray for your preacher, but people in the pulpit, if they're sinning publicly, call them out publicly. That's the truth. It's not an easy statement, but we need to be clear about that, right? And we need to make sure that, that, that we're being held to those standards and those accounts. Peter was a Jew, but he had been living like a Gentile, and then, of course, he withdrew there on the end. This day, he's expecting Gentiles to follow Jewish customs, and if you will, for me, for your preacher's sake today, culture. So here's what I want you to think about with me today. Again, this is where I'm going to kind of hit you and challenge you and get understand I'm just trying to get you to think. When do we see culture and the gospel blend together. When you see culture and the gospel blend together, I think one of the easiest ways to see that is on the mission field, right? And I don't know if you guys are old fans of old movies like uh, Catherine Hepburn, things like that, 
when those old missionaries went over, especially a lot of times into Africa and Central Africa, what happened to those cultures? You would see native Central Africans, men, dressed how? They would have a collar shirt, a tie, a vest, and a suit coat on in the middle of Africa. <laughs> Why is that? Is that because when you get saved and you come to Jesus Christ that all men need to have a three-piece suit? No, they were transferring the culture with the gospel when they just needed the gospel. Are you tracking with me today? Hang on there, because I'm going to get a little closer to home here in just a second. You might even see ladies wearing, uh, when I say Western, not like Southwestern, but like uh, Western Hemisphere, style dresses and hats. And what was kind of sad to me as a music person is that they would not sing their indigenous music, but they would have English music. And sometimes they would have English music with English words. Isn't that troubling to anyone? That's not right, is it? That's not you taking the gospel and make it part of your culture. That's you just taking somebody else's culture and transferring it on that. One of the most awesome things for me in India was sitting down with Sindhu and Minnie and these five ladies in this house who could just sing to the heavens. And Sindhu is banging on his drum on the side and they're just singing out loud and we're just eating it up. I didn't know a single word, but I knew they were praising the Lord with what they were giving. They were giving their selves and their culture to God. They didn't have to sing my song. How, how arrogant would that be for me to say, oh, that's terrible. You've got to sing my song if you're going to follow Jesus. Are you tracking with me now? And sometimes we take our culture and we lay it on top of the gospel. And then we have expectations of other people that they would follow. Now, here's, this is going to hit some of you. If you have questions, hit me up later, but this is one of your preacher's pet peeves. I have such a problem with the lie that the King James Version is the only acceptable Bible version. What a travesty that we would expect other cultures to learn English so they could have the word of God, especially when the Bible was not even written in English. I love King James Bible. Its language is far superior for me than any other English I have ever read. If you're going to quote Psalm 23 at my funeral, please quote it in KJV. But for me to say that the KJV is the only Bible that people need, oh, that's me being arrogant and taking my culture and laying it over the top of the gospel. Right? If I'm a Spanish speaker, I need a Spanish Bible. And if I'm a Brazilian speaker, you better give me some Portuguese in my Bible. Right? Lord, help us when we are that arrogant that we put our culture and we lay it out as a tradition like that. Here's another one. This is hard for the preacher, especially since the preacher can't dance. Uh, any of you dancers out there? We were again on our trip. Yeah, Ray, I know he's a dancer. He loves dance. We all knew that, Diane. We were on our trip with Dr. Eagleton and uh, another one, some of the missionary families. and. Um, we were talking because in the Indian church, they have a lot of dance as celebration to the Lord. And I said, oh, well, that may be the Indian church. But I said, oh, free will Baptists don't dance. Just kind of making a joke, you know, free will Baptists don't dance. 
you guys have heard the old, you know, Baptists don't, they call it dance sin, right? Dan, S-I-N, dance sin. <laughs> Our dance is a little different than their dance sometimes, right? And as we were talking about this, Dr. Eagleton corrected me. He's like, well, Travis, some free old Baptists in America don't dance, but free old Baptists in Africa and free old Baptists in Brazil and free old Baptists all over India, guess what they do in worship? Oh, they dance. And again, I just felt in that moment, just so humbled, like, here you go. You've taken your culture and you've made a pronouncement that this is how it is. And this is not how it is at all. We have to be very careful about keeping those things separated. Even last week, and again, you're going to bear with me here this morning. Please hear me out. And if you've got questions about it, talk to me later. We spoke about this at our ministry board meeting last week. I think it is right and it is good to honor those who have uh, served in our country. Amen? Okay? I think it's right and good to honor people for many reasons. It's good for us to honor Miss Charlotte and all the things that she's done, okay? It is good to do those things. But hear me out this morning, and you're gonna, some of you are going to be like, what? Being an American and being a Christian are not the same thing. Think with me here just for a second. In Pakistan, they will not be singing, oh, beautiful for spacious skies in their church service. And they will not have an American flag in their sanctuary. As a matter of fact, if they were to do as we do, they would have a Pakistani flag flying and they would celebrate special days for their military service men and women. And do you see how we have to be careful that our culture doesn't get tied to the gospel? Now, hear me out today. It's fine for churches to honor our country and to honor our men and women who serve. I think it's a good thing, but we should expect that all cultures will be honoring people uh, deserve honor no matter what their location is, okay? And sometimes we get those things all tied together when we need to make sure that the gospel stands above, right? Do you guys remember when Sindhu and many came to our church the first time? Some of you guys won't know this. Sindhu Amini, Sindhu was a, uh, he is a uh, missionary in India, incredible man of God, just leading so many people to Christ. This is amazing. Reaching so many unreached peoples. They come to a special uh, meeting uh, in the fall, and then we invite them to come back to our church for a persecuted church Sunday where Sindhu can preach. So that Saturday night, we have a get-together. And guess what all the good old American Frugal Baptists serve Sindhu and many? Hot dogs. In their culture, that's a big no-no. They would never even think of eating something as detestable and horrible as some of you in our culture are saying the same thing, right? Yes. But, but any kind of pork, that, that is wrong. They wouldn't do that. Now, they were so gracious and amazing, and Donna was wonderful. She had some chicken soup, so we got us all off the hook that night, okay? But what if that next Sunday, what if Sindhu had come in, and he started preaching, and he said, uh, Todd, Todd Fields, you barbecue-smoking person, you need to sell your smokers, because making that kind of meat and selling that kind of meat, that is a sin. That is wrong. It's detestable to God. If you want to please God, get rid of that meat. How would that go over? But now do you kind of see culturally how that was happening here in the church with the Galatians? 
it was the same thing. People were coming in, spying on freedoms, and they were like, guess what? Here's the things that you need to be doing. Here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. And they were elevating their traditions above the gospel. So here's the bottom line. We must be very careful of the gospel and not let it be tainted by our traditions and cultural history. Please enjoy your culture, enjoy your traditions, but don't let them taint the gospel. And so we get back to where we, went, we started this morning. Look at verse 15. Peter said, or excuse me, Paul says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, notice his tone, verse 16, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by what? By faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ Jesus and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Are you getting it? It's pretty clear, isn't it, right? Yeah. We have a lot of written rules, a lot of unwritten rules sometimes in our church traditions. What is the key to the gospel here in this verse that Paul says? It's faith. When you've, you've heard these kind of stories before, when you enter the pearly gate, so to speak, the Lord is not going to look at you and say, show me your checklist and show me the laws that you've upheld. <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact, and we were reminded this not too long ago, Paul was reminding us, if you break the law in one part, you're breaking the whole law, right? It, it, that's not going to work out for us, right? What, the only thing that's going to matter is if you have put your faith in Christ and then you've lived a life of response to that faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. Your traditions are nice. Your history is nice. Your church customs are wonderful. But don't let them take the place of the truth that what you need is faith in Jesus Christ. You guys, so many young believers can get tripped up because of all the lists and rules and ideas and everything. And what we just need to keep pushing them to is what? a relationship with Jesus. You want that fruit to grow on that tree? Instead of trying to do love and do joy and do peace, you want to be love, joy, and peace? What do you need to do? Increase your faith in the Lord, and then those things will flow out. Okay, quick review here real fast. When might it be a good idea to pay attention and even adhere to culture? Well, we saw with Timothy, right? To show respect, to have influence with others, to share and show love to those who are like us. And so again, hear me out today, being a good old American, going to a ball game, eating apple pie, there's nothing wrong with these things. And hear this out, this is an interesting thing. Sometimes those things are good for the kingdom, right? This Friday, I was with a bunch of my coworkers that I love dearly, but many of them don't know Christ. And if I were to say, well, I'm not gonna do those things with you because I'm a Christian, you're not then I would lose influence with them. I would, it all was just some very simple traditional things that are not sinful in themselves, but they're good. When should we be wary of culture as it relates to the gospel? When the culture is pressuring us to add to the word of God. That's what was happening in Galatia. And you guys, I'm telling you, it's happening in churches in America today. When church tradition and cult, custom and culture starts getting added to the word of God, that's when you're wary of them. When culture exalts itself above Jesus, that's when we separate it. When pleasing culture is more important than pleasing God, that's what happened with Peter in his situation. And so my challenge to you this morning is, can you separate culture and tradition from the gospel? 
And I think you've got a pretty good picture. The willingness now, though, is will you call it out like Paul did when he saw it? All right, one final illustration. We'll be dismissed here this morning. I want to just give you another way to look for Jesus instead of looking for a tradition. And I think this may even be pretty applicable to us today. Shane Claiborne is a young Christian activist whose mission is to take Jesus and the message of the gospel seriously. Shane is one of the founding members of The Simple Way, a Christian community in Philadelphia. Their mission is to love God and to love people and to follow Jesus. That sounds really complicated, doesn't it? Right? <laughs> love God, love people, follow Jesus. Shane has taken the gospel beyond the streets of Philadelphia into the slums of Calcutta and the war zones of Iraq. And in his book, Irresistible Revolution, he describes how God revealed himself through the homeless. He says, I saw one woman in a crowd as she struggled to get a meal from one of the late night food vans. When we asked her if the meals were really worth the fight, she said, oh, yes, but I didn't eat them myself. I get them for another homeless lady, an elderly woman around the corner who can't fight for a meal. He says, I saw a street kid get 20 bucks panhandling outside of a store and then immediately run inside to share it with all of his friends. We saw a homeless man lay a pack of cigarettes in the offering plate because it was all he had. I met a blind street musician who was viciously abused by some young guys who would mock her and curse her and one night even sprayed Lysol in her eyes as a practical joke. As we held her that night, one of us said, there are a lot of bad folks in the world, aren't there? And she said, oh, but there are a lot of good ones too. And the bad ones make you, and the good ones seem even sweeter. He said, we met a little seven-year-old girl who was homeless, and we asked her what she wanted to do when she grew up. And she paused pensively, and then she replied, I want to own a grocery store. We asked why, and she said, so I can give out food to all the hungry people. Mother Teresa used to say, in the poor we meet Jesus in his most distressing disguises. And now I know what she means. Don't let the traditions and the customs and the culture cover over the truth that God sent his only begotten son to die on our behalf, that if we would repent our sins, put our faith in him, that he would forgive us and heal us and help us to live a life that honors him and fills us with great joy. Amen? Let's stand this morning.